The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Juliet Jakes. We talked about Variations, her debut collection of short stories on trans experience. Inspired by found material and real-life events, the book explores the history of transgenderism in Britain from the time of the Oscar Wilde trial to the second decade of the 2000s. We talked about why Juliet chose to use fiction to address the history of trans, the feelings of responsibility that come with describing the experiences of characters based on the lives of real people who lived, loved and suffered. And we also talked about the work of the sexologist Havelock Ellis, who plays a prominent part in one of the stories. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete by Geo Marr. This new book from Verso offers concrete strategies for confronting and breaking police power as a first step toward building community alternatives that make the police obsolete. Abolition is not a distant dream or an unreachable horizon, but an attainable reality. Take this book everywhere. Read, share, act, defund, disarm, abolish. That's what Robin Kelly says about a world without police, how strong communities make cops obsolete. The book is out from Verso Books this month and part of their Verso Book Club reading. And now to today's interview. Juliet Jakes is a writer and filmmaker based in London. She's the author of Raina Heppenstall, A Critical Study, and Trans, A Memoir. Her landmark column on gender reassignment appeared in The Guardian, entitled A Transgender Journey, and she's written for the London Review of Books, Granter, Sight and Sound, Freeze, Art Review, and The New York Times, amongst other publications. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So the book is a collection of short stories, but those stories are in very varied forms. So there are letters, parts of screenplays, blog posts in the later sections of the book, uh, diary entries. And the material spans from the middle of the 19th century and, and coming up to the present day. Why did you choose those particular forms and, and also fiction in, in general to write about trans experience? Well, I chose fiction because, firstly, it was just really, really my passion, you know, from, from a young age, sort of teenager onwards, was, was drawn to literature and interested in it and excited by it. And in my teens and early 20s, I was reading a lot of what I guess we'd sort of look at a kind of canon of, of queer literature, which is mostly gay male authors like Oscar Wilde, Jean Genet, Jean Cocteau, William mm-hmm. Burroughs, James Baldwin, also some women that would be maybe read as lesbian or, or queer, uh, more formally experimental people like Virginia Woolf and Anne Quinn. 
And in this, I sort of saw the possibility of a trans literature. By this time, I was identifying as transgender. I hadn't transitioned yet, but I was very much understanding myself as a trans person. And, you know, in some of the sort of cross-dressing characters in Jean Genet, for example, or in the works of queer Latin American authors like Copi or Severo Sardoy, I saw this possibility of a trans literature, but not really the reality of it. You know, I didn't see openly trans characters or characters who maybe would easily be read as as trans. Often the one exception really was Severo Sardoy's novel Cobra, which had a drag queen protagonist, but it was very much kind of gay man's fantasy of what a trans life might mm. be like. But so I sort of felt the possibility of, of trans literature, but not yet the reality. And over the years, I discovered a lot of trans writing, but it was largely North American and it was almost exclusively social theory, what Susan Stryker calls transgender studies. And as I got drawn more into trans writing, I, I had a go at writing these short stories in the mid-2000s and couldn't really make them work, partly because of the absence of a, of a unifying theme. And I got more in, drawn more into journalism. Obviously, I wrote the Transgender Journey series for The Guardian in 2010 to 12, documenting mm. my transition, and then did Trans a Memoir for Verso in 2015, which was the book that grew out of, of that series. And, you know, the book had quite a bit of sort of trans kind of cultural and political history in it. But I realised there was a lot of ignorance, really, about the history of trans and non-binary people in Britain, and nobody had really written a centralised history of it. So I thought about doing that. And, you know, I was a bit worried about the implications of a sort of transsexual, relatively prominent, relatively middle class, like white transsexual woman writing that history. And I thought that actually something a bit more kind of polyvocal might be better for, for that project. And also there were lots of questions about who counts as trans and particularly for individuals who maybe, you know, preceded the 20th century and the identity categories that evolved within it. And it mm. struck me that fiction, you know, this 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 collection of short stories I'd always wanted to write since about 2003 when I was in my early 20s. I'd always wanted to write a volume of short stories about trans and non-binary people as a way of kind of capturing the the kind of diversity of of the community. And I felt that to be a potentially more rich and rewarding starting point than a novel because of the sheer number of, of lives it could potentially explore. And, you know, I'd always had this title Variations in mind, and it was always as important to me that the um, the variety of the, the trans and non-binary community was reflected in the form as well as the content. And once I hit on this idea of, of doing the volume as a, as a sort of potted fairly bottom-up, but not entirely bottom-up, history of, of trans and non-binary people in Britain, it seemed interesting to me to deal with the fact that, you know, such people had often had to suppress themselves or had been suppressed by the law or had been, you know, kind of legally or institutionally or culturally erased or forgotten. And that maybe there was a way of choosing forms that were appropriate to the time period that I looked at and that maybe sort of reflected how visible people were able to be. So the first story, for example, is a, is a sort of rediscovered secret diary written in 1846 to reflect the fact that it would not have been possible for the characters to be particularly open about the fact that they cross-dress in early Victorian London. 
And if they did, it would it would cause them a lot of trouble. And indeed, you know, one night out for one of the characters dressed as a woman causes an awful lot of social and institutional difficulty. Whereas, of course, you know, the final story is set in 2014. It's called Tipping Point. And it's the character responding on a blog, which is an already slightly, if not anachronistic, then outmoded form by 2014. People weren't really blogging in that way so much by that point, although some people were still doing it. So the character has a bit of a sense of what he's doing uh, in Belfast already being a bit behind the times. But the blog form obviously reflects the fact that access to the internet and self-publishing brought through a lot more expressive and communal possibilities for the trans community that that weren't there previously. So so that's why there's there's all these kind of different forms. I mean, you mentioned the film script, that one's set in the 1990s, and it's kind of reflecting on the fact that there were, for the first time, quite a few films in the 1990s in Britain and the US with trans characters kind of at their core. Mm-hmm. So the choice of that form is a kind of wry commentary on that in and of itself. The Crying Game, Different for Girls, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, To Wong Fu, the Belgian film Mavion Rose. There were quite a lot of them. And a trans character in Coronation Street, of course, as well. But, you know, yeah. these characters were often not played by um, openly trans people and I don't think written and certainly not directed by them either. On that decision to do fiction rather than to write uh, a history, I mean, I I found myself wondering whether that could also be, and perhaps this is wrong, but whether that's a response in some ways to the particular moment that we're in and, and the sheer toxicity of the mainstream discussion around trans, which might make one reluctant to take a more polemical position and that actually this could be a moment where it's more productive to do something in, in the in the vein of, of fiction well i mean it's interesting because you know as, as i said i had this idea to do this volume of, of short stories for nearly 20 years but i think the specific shape of it and the fact that i ended up committing to this idea of volume of short stories after 2015 was partly to do with the the nature of the mainstream discourse around trans issues which actually say is um incredibly unpleasant and doesn't really show many signs of of getting any better but you know with with the transition journal for the guardian and with the memoir i had sort of acceded to the demands of the discourse at that time those were the the two things that mainstream discourse really needed i think was was somebody writing memoir in a way that you know accepted the demand of a lot of sort of editors and cultural gatekeepers that the wider public would only be interested in hearing individual stories, but then use that as a kind of Trojan horse to bring in lots of trans history and culture and make space for for wider trans writing. And I think, you know, for all the problems with with the mainstream discourse, that project was was, you know, part of opening up that that discourse and worked in that sense quite well. I mean, the the final story in the book, Tipping Point, you know, is about a blogger who gets drawn into sort of relatively mainstream liberal trans activism and and mainstream sort of centre-right journalism during the kind of austerity period ends up refusing it and just saying, no, I just want to write about Formula One, actually. So the stories do sort of both implicitly and explicitly reject the demands of the discourse. And I think that's actually conversely a sign of of confidence. And it was me sort of trying to say to wider trans writers and particularly myself, look, you don't have to just have your work completely shaped by this really toxic discourse i think it's really essential that people do take on the sort of mainstream discourse directly and sean Fay's book the transgender issue which is out next week all the early indications are that's going to do that very forcefully and very well so it's important that someone's doing that and if i really felt that no one 
was doing it and no one was going to do it, then maybe I would have written a different book. But I think, you know, the success of um, of Tori Peters's Detransition Baby, which came out in Britain earlier this year, and there's a few other things kind of coming in the next year or so, as well as sort of relative success of Geordie Rosenberg and Andrea Lawless novels that came out in, I think, 2017 to 19. Uh, do show that there is, you know, a demand for trans characters and trans literature that just goes beyond like trans readers and and writers. And you know, I, th- I think one of the most important things that trans writers can do at the moment is open up more fronts because they can't fight us in all of them, I don't think, or at least not successfully, not all the time. Obviously, as we've already discussed, the book goes from the middle of the nineteenth century up and up until the present day. And I was thinking about those earlier chapters, and and I was wondering whether on your part, there was some intent to want to almost fold trans experience back into a, a, a broader sense of, of queerness and, and opposition to heteronormativity. And obviously, if we if we go go back to the 19th century and, and earlier even, there is that sense that being trans is just treated almost as you know one variety of, of perversion at the time, along with homosexuality and, and so on. Was that sort of part of your thinking at all, given the situation we have today, where, where we have this kind of attempt on the part of transphobes to sort of very much other trans people yeah i mean you know the history i was working to it's the one broadly sketched out in susan striker's transgender history which came out in 2008 this idea that the development of industrial cities let people mostly mostly men or people assigned male at birth escape the bonds of feudal societies and move to the metropolis and have a level of anonymity and so be able to engage in behaviours that would, would just, you know, probably get them killed at, at home. And, you know, public cross-dressing being one of those things. And the first story details somebody who wants to go out dressed as a woman and and gets apprehended by the newly formed Metropolitan Police at a time when there's there's no law against any sexual behaviour except buggery, I think, the um, 1553 Act passed by, I think, Thomas Cromwell, so the trans people who were put on trial in the um, early Victorian period, and there were quite a lot, or you know, proto-trans people cross-dressers, I should say, were often tried for sort of public order offences or soliciting, and they're often sort of given a fine and a slap on the wrist. And then there's the case of Bolton and Park in 1870 to 1871, who were arrested, and they, Ernest or Stella Bolton and Frederick or Fanny Park, like frequently go around London and elsewhere dressed as, as sort of high society ladies. Uh, but also worked as as female personators, they were called at the time. So drag queens, basically, is a fairly new phenomenon um, in the mid nineteenth century. And they were they were sort of tried for, I think that the charge was conspiring to incite others to commit unnatural offences. And wouldn't you know it, because it's barely grammatically coherent, this charge didn't really stand up, and they basically got this dishonourable mm. discharge. And the following decade. The government passed the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885, which um, makes gross indecency between two consenting adults, public or private, punishable with two years and hard labour, which of course is what does for Oscar Wilde in uh, 1895. And the sort of implications of that law are explored in the second story, which is set in London in 1895 around the Oscar Wilde trial and sort of pulls out the sort of more proto-trans elements of, of the Wilde trial and of that subculture more generally sort of imagines what they might have looked like and indeed maybe people who weren't allowed to exist or haven't been allowed to be remembered. But the 19th century stories are very much dealing with a world in which, yes, cross-dressing, sodomy, gender identity and sexuality are all 
you know, quite poorly understood and, and just basically all understood as one category, which is being criminalized. And then the third mm. story is called Reconfiguration. And this is the the only one to feature a real historical individual at its core. I mean, there's obviously lots of real historical characters who come upon the peripheries of these stories, but the only one to make a real historical character its protagonist is Reconfiguration. This follows the um, the sexologist Havelock Ellis's sort of 1920s mm. attempts to come up with a theory of um, of gender variance and how his sort of theories sort of bump up against the complexity of, of actual lives. But yeah, that attempt to separate the two categories doesn't really start to gain ground until the 1910s. And, you know, you mentioned the, the sort of divide and rule strategy. There's been a real attempt in recent years to really heighten conflicts between gay men, lesbians and trans people in particular, which have existed really since the um, since the 70s. They're alluded to in the 1970s story and the 1980s story. And they're also a big part of the 2010s story. But yeah, I mean, I do feel a strong sense of affinity with an approach to, you know, the sort of broad tent approach to um, to LGBT Q plus identities and this sort of sense that we are, you know, united by shared oppression rather than um, divided by by certain differences. And this would be a better basis of uh, of politics for us. But you know, the the mainstream media in particular has other ideas. So yeah, again, this book is to some extent also trying to um, to counter that. But you know, it should be read as as literature above all. I think thinking about the earlier chapters and taking on the voice of obviously these are characters and this is fiction, but nonetheless. You're talking about experiences which did indeed occur to people. And I wondered if there was a particular sense of responsibility that you felt in assuming those voices and describing the experiences and the suffering and encounters with the police and so on, and what you felt maybe were the difficulties in, in doing that, because I don't think that's perhaps common of most fiction writing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, with, with the first story, it was all about going through the archives and finding these... Um, these cases of these Victorian, particularly male to female, cross-dressers being arrested and, and tried and trying to sort of pull out a typical narrative. And indeed, the book more or less starts with a found text relating to um, to a case of somebody called John Travers in 1846 in London, which may or may not have been Travers's name on, on the birth certificate. But, you know, there was, there was a sense of having to be, you know, being able to invent certain details around the characters in that first story, which is called A Night at the Theatre, but having to be sort of truthful to the processes that these people underwent in terms of, you know, the sort of ways in which they would have to meticulously plan one night out, dress as a woman, what they might have worn, obviously, the types of fears that they would have felt, which in some some extent were universal. I mean, when I was writing that first story and the central character is very scared of, of going out dressed as a woman for the first time, you know, I drew on some of my own anxieties of, of doing the same thing in the early 21st century, you know, when it was perfectly legal, but there was still quite a good chance of just getting, you know, beaten up. So I drew on those anxieties to an extent, although obviously the stakes are a lot higher for my characters in, in 1846. So there was a sense of wanting to be kind of truthful to that. But it was also, you know, in a way, it was quite good to be able to explore these things more broadly, because in uh, Trans and Memoir, I'd been very, very rigidly had to stick to just things that had happened to me. I couldn't include any experiences yeah. of people like me, really, unless I was ascribing it to them. But because it was a memoir, you know, you can just touch on them and how it makes me feel. But everything had to come back to to just me and what I had personally 
been through. And the idea of writing that memoir as sort of autofiction appealed to me because it would have allowed me more leeway. But I think the representative pressure on on the memoir and the way that, you know, if I had been judged to be writing a dishonest autobiography, it would have brought to the whole British trans community into disrepute. And of course, the 1990s story in in variations kind of explores the implications of that idea, I think, in a, a fairly sort of metafictional way. But the format in variations did give me a lot more leeway to explore, you know, the implications of different institutional setups with the gender identity clinics through history, with the police, with the different characters of the media, but also things that were kind of permanent, you know, media persecution of trans people in Britain, you know, goes all the way back to the 19th century, for example. So it was was definitely possible to do that and you know was was really trying to be sort of faithful to that history that runs through industrialization and then media and then um, legal persecution and then sexology as a way of trying to counter that legal persecution and provide a springboard for rights campaigns and then you know growing media representation the development of of trans activism and organizing and subculture as well and it was really interesting and really kind of fun to try and render those things uh, creatively. Yeah, absolutely. On the first chapter, which you've already mentioned, A Night at the Theatre, I think that there's maybe one way such a story could be told, which is of a trans woman going to the theatre with a male partner in the middle of the 19th century and the author describing that in her diary of the experience, the lead up to going to the theatre, as you say, choosing what to wear and and then eventually being arrested by the police and I was thinking that there could be a very simple straightforward recounting of that story whereby there's fear of being found out and there's all the sort of tension around that and it leads eventually to indeed they are found out and and the consequences of that but in the story you emphasize the quite contradictory feelings there appear to be around wanting to be seen not wanting to be seen at one point the police suggest that she wanted to be found out but also her partner also says the same thing So I wonder if you could talk about that question of visibility and the contradictory feelings it engenders. Yeah, I mean, visibility has always been a complicated thing for trans people because, you know, the extent to, you know, how possible is it for us to hide our identities and how desirable is that? You know, the obvious sort of interesting points of comparison are sort of, you know, for ethnic minorities, you know, there isn't the choice of, of kind of hiding hiding their minority status and, you know, for the most part, some people do kind of you know, pass as white in white-dominated societies and so forth, but for the most part, there's not not really that option of passing in the same way. And then for sort of gay men and, and lesbians, that visibility question is is rather different as well. And, you know, all the sort of debates around straight-acting people, which is often to do with kind of subscribing to gender norms as much as norms of sexuality, actually. And for trans people, it's been it's been kind of mixed, and and you know the way the gender identity clinics historically in the sort of mid to late twentieth century, as the trans theorist Sandy Stone puts it, programmed people to disappear. So there's this real anxiety about you know obviously the kind of police regulation of gender identity that's followed in in that story and in several of the others, but also the kind of media regulation of it and the just wider social regulation of it. You know visibility in great numbers can be a very useful thing, but like visibility and isolation can often be very dangerous. It's real kind of exposure. Mm. And yet there's something that's compelling the characters to to be visible despite all the risks. And, you know, I think it is quite hard for the characters 
not to internalize a sense of kind of wanting to be caught because that's the worst thing that can happen. And then maybe once the worst thing that can happen has happened, it's it's kind of liberating for them. And you read, you know, other sort of biographies or histories of, of LGBT people in various different contexts at various different times and and that theme kept coming up. You know, I tried to write a biography of the uh, eventually openly gay football player Justin Fashionu about 13, 14 years ago. I was working on that. And that theme kind of came up there, you know, Fashionu partly wanting to be outed because, you know, kind of people knew and there was a constant terror that being outed would would destroy his career. And, and you know, maybe he sort of felt like maybe it's best if it just just happens. But, you know, it ended up not really coming out until there wasn't really an awful lot to lose in terms of his football career. And it actually kind of strangely reinvigorated that uh, in a way, at least for a few years. So there's all this sort of tension about visibility that had been explored by trans writers. There's an essay, I can't remember who it's by now, it might be uh, Jack Halberstam called Look, Don't Look. And it's all about the kind of ambivalence of of visibility for trans people. And, and you know, the sort of historical thing of, of particularly passing transsexual people and the kind of anxieties and the constant stress that comes with that having to deny one's history and maybe cut oneself off from from your own sort of network of friends and family and things in order to do that in order to not be visible but then the um like i said the legal and social problems of of visibility as well and and you know what all these things mean in a transphobic society and i wanted to get that sense of of characters internalizing that and of that being something that was likely to be an issue going all the way back to uh, to the 19th century. It struck me as something that was fairly timeless. So in the story, the exhibition, the story recounts the experience of Julian Cooper, a trans man who joins a so-called House of Curiosities in Blackpool and is part of this exhibit which consists of Cooper being together on stage with a, a woman cast as, as Cooper's wife. And the situation is described as, as Cooper being in one bed while his partner is in another bed separated by a Belisha beacon, and as it's described in a fictionalised newspaper report, otherwise living as a normal couple, despite obviously, you know, being on stage in front of, you know, lots of people. Can you talk about what inspired that particular story and situation? I mean, that's that story is, is the scenario is lifted pretty much directly from the life of Colonel Victor Barker, who was a interwar trans man who was sent to prison for perjury for marrying a woman and uh, living as a man and sent to a women's prison and then, you know, kind of got out and was from quite an aristocratic background and had quite a difficult life thereafter. And the exposure of, of that punishment, you know, obviously caused Barker an awful lot of, of problems. And so one of the things Barker did was was live for two months as a seaside attraction in, in Blackpool. And, you know, in all the things I read about Barker, you know, this was rather skated over Rose Collis's book about... Barker, which I think is called The Monstrous Regiment of Colonel Barker, you know, doesn't spend much time on Barker's time in Blackpool at all. But I've always been really kind of fascinated by by that sort of, I don't know, having to live your own sort of metafiction, I guess, is something that's always been of great interest to me. Mm. And I mentioned earlier, sort of autofiction is really, really interesting to me. And, and, you know, a kind of having to relive something or live something, you know, on display as a sort of punishment for something is really interesting to me. I always remember a scene in the um, the film The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, where, of course, the Ford brothers think that they're, you know, doing a great public service by killing this outlaw and, of course, are, you know, surprised to find that they are hated and ostracised for it. And one thing that, again, is really touched on very, very briefly 
in the kind of coda to the film that shows you, you know, most of the film is is showing the build up to the assassination. The coda is is what happens after. And in the coda, there's a, a very short scene about the Ford brothers basically doing a stage play where they reenact the shooting and they kind of reenact it in a way that really, you know, they're, they're kind of made up almost like ventriloquist dummies. It's really humiliating mm. and they're very much like exposed to the the hatred of the crowd who come along to just kind of hurl invective at them. And at the time I thought, no, I want to watch that film. That's what I want to see. And, you know, so the exhibition was sort of pulling out a similar story in the life of, uh, of Barker uh, and ascribing it to a kind of analogous character. I, I decided I didn't want to just just use Victor Barker because I, I wanted to maybe bring certain other kind of differences and complexities to my protagonist. But nonetheless, the life of Julian Cooper does quite closely mirror that of, um, of Victor Barker. But I thought, again, you know, it'd be really, really interesting to just home in on that moment. And what does it say about historical transphobia? What's it say about Britain's entertainment culture? You know, I've always been fascinated by sort of seaside entertainment as well. I mean, I lived in Brighton for for eight years. Mm. And one of my favourite novels is Berg by Anne Quinn. And Quinn, along with some of us sort of British sort of neo-modernist contemporaries like B.S. Johnson and Rainer Heppenstall, were a huge influence on, on these stories. They were really what I was reading when I conceived this project in the mid-2000s. And Quinn's Berg is all about a man called Berg who changed his name to Greb, who came to a seaside town intending to kill his father. And his father does this, you know, really sort of tawdry end of the pier ventriloquist act. And there's a lot of play with the ventriloquist dummy in, in Berg. And that was, that was you know, a big influence on, on the writing as well. So, yeah, those sort of themes have just always really fascinated me. On the crowd in the exhibition, so the crowd are not portrayed as simply hostile or, or mocking, although there is some of that, but there's, there's a sort of variety of reaction which is described. Could you say something about that and, and why you, you chose to portray the crowd in, in the way you did? Yeah, I mean, because... People are are complicated and, you know, I don't tend to like sort of monolithic crowd scenes necessarily where, where you know, all of the crowd immediately have the same reaction to something. And the only time I've ever really seen that work is in The Simpsons, where it's just played for incredibly, uh, incredibly good comic effect. But, you know, I sort of found that, you know, for example, when I did my, my Guardian blog or was just on Twitter, I got all sorts of responses from from people and they kind of cut across certain lines. I would get both positive and negative responses from gay men, from lesbians, from straight men, from straight women, from other transsexual people, from like non-binary people, from other types of trans person. And the responses are really sort of complicated and difficult to predict. And with the Victor Barker case, you have something else that I um, was able to borrow from my story, which was mass observation, which was the organization set up by the uh, Surrealist Poets Charles Madge and Humphrey Jennings, of course, also a really wonderful documentary filmmaker, and Tom Harrison in 1937 to, as the name suggests, just, you know, sort of do this sort of wide-scale ethnography of Britain, really. And, and Blackpool was one of the places they would go, and they recorded some of the responses to Barker. And sure enough, you know, some people said, like, yeah, this is disgusting, it shouldn't be allowed, why is it here, I don't want to see it. Some people just said, well, look, I really support this person, like, Barker just wants to be with with this woman. What's wrong with that? And then a lot of people just said, look, this is just actually just really boring. And that's very much recorded in the exhibition as well. But again, historically, it's, it's, it's documented that there were a really wide range of reactions to people and that, you know, sort of British society in the 20s or indeed in the 1860s or whatever, 
was was you know not as sort of monolithically prejudiced as um, as maybe certain historians would like you to believe, and I really wanted mm. to to record that in the book. Would you say that then you you tend not to see a particularly linear sense of progress in certain respects? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did a history degree and one of the things that stuck with me the most on that degree was being taught the difference between the Whig and radical models of history. You know, this Whiggish, Whiggish idea, this liberal idea that, you know, freedoms gradually unfold and they can't really be rolled back versus the radical idea that, you know, each generation has to fight the same battles again and that, you know, reaction is always come back and try and overturn previous gains. And I think the sort of narrative I build in variations is somewhere between the two, but much closer to the latter. And, you know, in particular, my sort of experience of living as a, as a transsexual woman was that I often encountered more sort of prejudice and difficulty in places with larger trans communities. So in Brighton and London, because people were familiar with trans people, they knew what we looked like and they knew what they were kind of looking for. And again, it goes back to that double edged sword of visibility that we were talking about earlier. Whereas, you know, if I went somewhere like kind of my, my hometown, uh, it's a small town in Surrey. I just got more or less kind of left alone because, you know, it didn't it didn't really seem like a kind of threat to the body politics. Just have like one trans person there and indeed people weren't really sort of looking out for me and, and, and you know, it just didn't really seem to be such an issue to people. So there is this sort of sense that that the gains that people make lead to, you know, kind of deficits in in other areas that then have to be clawed back, but then that, you know, leaves you vulnerable to other other attacks elsewhere. I mean, I guess it will part, almost sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about needing to open up a lot of fronts and being able to fight on all of them, which, you know, historically we haven't really been able to do because our community has been quite small and quite um, atomized and fragmented and indeed discouraged from, from organizing. So there's very much this sense that, you know, progress is not necessarily linear, but I do think that in each historical period that I write about, it would be better than living in the ones that immediately precede it. Maybe with the exception of the 1890s, in some senses, harder than the 1840s because the law really know what they're looking for. But even then, there's more of a sort of queer a sort of subculture that you can find or you have to be incredibly careful once you're in it. But, you know, throughout the 20th century, I don't think there are any stories in which the situation is worse than in the one before. The wider situation, I mean, I mean, the situation within the stories, perhaps, you know, the, the 2000 story in particular that's set within a sort of radical queer collective in Brighton turns out very badly for all of the characters, but they're able to be in this radical queer collective. And that in itself is is a kind of progress. And they're able to sort of live lives outside of that collective as well that are much more uh, open and, and maybe meaningful and honest than they could have been, you know, 20 or 40 or 50 years ago. Just going back to Havelock Ellis, you've touched on this already, but in terms of his theorising of variance, could you talk about what his theory was and, and how you show it being confounded to some extent by encountering trans people? Yeah, I mean, a really crucial intervention, really, probably the most important theoretical intervention into issues around gender identity, of course, is um, Magnus Hirschfeld's book, The Transvestites, The Erotic Drive to Cross-Dress, which he publishes in Germany in 1910. And this is the first serious study of, of gender variance and gender identity as a phenomenon in and of itself. The first real attempt to sort of separate it from homosexuality. And, you know, there's a sort of friendly rivalry between Hirschfeld and a number of other sexologists, including Havelock Ellis, who is probably the foremost British sexologist at this point in the sort of 20s. And Ellis, you know, wants a kind of counter theory to Hirschfeld's theory of, of transvestism, that there is, you know, a sort of, to some extent sexual, but this sort of innate 
drive to cross-dress and that for some people it makes them want to be transsexual. And indeed, Hirschfeld, you know, is kind of tangentially involved in the first surgeries in the 1920s. And for some people, you know, sort of satisfied with just like cross-dressing or having a sort of different persona that they inhabit some of the time and that, you know, it's different for different people. Ellis comes up with this theory that he calls Ianism after the Chevalier Dion, who's a sort of 18th century French diplomat and spy who settles in London and, and lives quite a long time as a woman, more or less full time. And Ellis sort of basically suggests that cross-dressers do so because they want to become the object of their own desire. I guess it's not a million miles away from the sort of autogynophilia uh, theory that that persists to to this day, this this idea that people should dress up as a thing they're attracted to. And Ianism I read and I just found it to be a very weak text. I, I think there's, you know, a good good historical reason why uh, Ellis didn't return to those theories in the last 10 years of his life after he published it and why, you know, you won't have heard that term outside of very kind of rarefied academic circles around around sexology and, and gender variants. And, you know, the, the book itself, I, I just think, is quite sort of flat, and I, I really got the sense reading it that Ellis himself just wasn't convinced by it. And yeah. so I sort of invented this case study, so drawing on the fact that, unlike Hirschfeld, Ellis doesn't really speak to any female-to-male people. There's one in Ianism who is very quickly kind of quote-unquote cured of wanting to be a man. But, you know, there are a number of, like, the first transsexual people in Britain in the um, mid to late 1930s are, are trans men. And there's there's a few sort of prominent female-to-male people in the interwar period um, who maybe aren't surgical, like including Victor Barker, and you could obviously do a trans reading of Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, comes out in 1928. And indeed, uh, Ellis, you know, had uh, had correspondence with, with Radical, Radcliffe Hall about the the novel, which I document in in Reconfiguration in the story we're talking about. And so, you know, the sort of absence of female to male people, trans masculine people in in Ianism struck me as quite interesting, given that this, you know, this this women's sphere kind of emerges after World War One and and trans masculine and female to male people, you know, kind of are able to find some public expression in that. So I wanted to explore those processes and, you know, created this like rediscovered case history of a um of a trans man, basically, in the interwar period who Ellis has, you know, extensive conversations with and makes notes on, but isn't able to work into his final theory of Ianism, which he then, you know, kind of abandons. And I speculate that this inability to really work transmasculine people into the intellectual framework is the reason why, why he basically, you know, abandons this project, kind of publishes the research he has and then moves on. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the sort of thinking behind that story. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.